Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. In this episode, I'm talking to Eric Roth, a professor of Japanese history at the University of Kansas in Lawrence, Kansas. He's been researching Japanese food and history for the past 20 years or more. And the latest fruit of that research is a new book called Oishi, which means delicious. And although that's true, it's also pretty vague. But the subtitle tells you more. The History of Sushi. I'm sure everybody knows what sushi is, or at least they think they do. So I didn't want to start by asking Eric Rath to describe or define sushi. Instead, we just got stuck in to the history. The first references we have are from China, and they refer to a dish in the 3rd century BCE that's made with salt and fish. Now, in the 3rd century common era, there's another dish that appears, and that mixes fish and salt and rice. Got that? The first reference to sushi is just fish and salt. No rice. It's a way of preserving fish. Rice only came 400 years later. And these two dishes are so closely related that about a century later, they're referred to as the same thing. So it's a very simple dish. Fish, salt, and rice. And we have a 6th century Chinese recipe that tells us how this is all put together. And basically, the fish is salted. It's put in with the rice. And the rice helps uh, with the process of lactic acid fermentation. And over a period of weeks or months or perhaps even years, the composition of the fish completely changes. Uh, the flavor profile changes. It becomes a pickled food. And it's sour, like yogurt. Uh, and it also has a bit of a fragrance, too, as you can imagine from <laughs> sitting in a bucket for, for months or, or, or years on end. But, uh, yeah, I, I think if people were to try this today, uh, and if this was the only kind of sushi that was available, we probably wouldn't be talking about sushi because it would just be some sort of strange or, uh, you know, very very unusual dish. Not, not strange, but very unusual dish. Is that what the ancient kind of Japanese funazushi, is that the closest equivalent to it? There's varieties today that uh, emulate this ancient process. And the one that you mentioned, the funazushi, funa is a type of carp that lives in uh, waterways in Japan, fresh waterways like Lake Biwa in Shiga Prefecture. And, and it's quite uh, distinct. There's a sour profile to it. But what, what's really remarkable, what really kind of blows me away, is that it also takes on the characteristics of a cheese or a sausage, uh, depending on how you slice this fish. Um, so it's got this meaty flavor to it that you would not expect from sushi. But very sour. But very sour and very salty. Yeah. So I spent a couple of days just eating Funazushi alone. When I was doing my research, I had to try it. Uh, a lot of people had written about Funazushi and uh, hadn't really talked about the flavor profile of it. So I was really curious and went to Shiga and made the most of the opportunity to just eat Funazushi kind of straight with every meal for three days. And it was a bit of a bit much, <laughs> but I had a chance to experience it and, and enjoy it. And uh, it, it just it totally floored me how uh, a fish could be turned into something that tastes like a summer sausage or like a prosciutto. Funazushi and others like it are essentially regional specialities. They're not that widely appreciated in the rest of Japan. 
but they are real traditional forms of sushi. There's another traditional sushi whose history is a bit fishier. So there is this story in Japan. Uh, certain types of, of fish will self-ferment if they're just left alone in a, in a medium. And there was this type of fish, a type of sushi that people wrote about in the early modern period, 1600 to 1868, called osprey sushi, which many said, this is the origin of sushi. And what it was is people observed osprey, these birds of prey that live on the coast. They observed them gathering fish and putting them in a nest and urinating on them. And based upon that, uh, the fish was supposedly with the salt water and the interaction with the bird urine uh, was supposed to turn into a type of fermented dish. I, I think this is more of a, a made-up story, but it's a fascinating one. Uh, the birds apparently did that because it kept their enemies from eating their own sushi that they made. But apparently, according to the legend, some humans liked it. Ah. But uh, as as I said, this is this is a, this is just a story. I wouldn't yeah. really want to fight an osprey for its for its sushi, Not especially after it's been urinated on. Yeah. Okay. So, so when do we start getting this transition from it being fish in rice to fish with rice? Sometimes you don't want to eat that rice because after a period of months or years, it becomes like a paste, like a gluish paste. It loses all of its ricey consistency and it becomes extremely sour. So a lot of people who eat funazushi today won't eat that rice. They'll replace it with other rice, so they'll just focus on the fish. Uh, but if sushi started off as a means of preserving the fish, and the rice is essential to that, you have to realize rice is a very valuable thing, and especially in Japan, where it was also used as a currency. So you could see why people wouldn't want to use rice in this way, only to have to throw it out or to have it uh, putrefy and come to the point where you may not want to eat it. So they started eating the lactic acid sushi sooner, where the rice hadn't gone through all this fermentation and the sushi wasn't fully preserved, preserved, it was sort of half preserved. And that happens in the medieval period. And then the early modern period, there's attempts made to speed the fermentation process further. So uh, chefs would introduce vinegar or sake or koji, which is a uh, type of mold that's used in sake making that helps to uh, release the sugars in gr grain as a way of mustering them for fermentation. So they used all these different techniques to try to speed the sushi making process. And in the process of doing that, they changed the flavor, flavor profile of the rice. They made it, in, in essence, more palatable. And eventually they hit upon just using vinegar. And then uh, with that, you know, you could just take your rice, mix it with vinegar and salt, and then you could make your sushi right away, like your nigiri sushi or your rolled maki sushi. But now, originally, you're preserving the fish. Today, I think, you know, when I think of sushi, it's, it's fresh and it's raw. Over time, uh, in the 19th century, uh, as people changed the recipe for the rice, they turned sushi into a street food. And initially, you know, that street food had a very short shelf life. You might have people put out some ice and put out some fish and then have some rice uh, and then sell 
hand form nigirizushi on the street. But, you know, that's something you'd want to do just in the mornings with a bit of ice or just a bit of care. And, and of course, using smaller fish that were more easily manageable, people could probably have sushi, you know, for a few hours at least to sell to their customers. But right, with refrigeration, which really uh, happens after World War II, then that raises the possibility for having new types of fish uh, like bluefin tuna. We'll get back to tuna, I promise. But I wanted to know more about how sushi was eaten as a street food. Was it a snack or more of a meal? I, I think it's like getting a hot dog is today in the States. Uh, it, it, first of all, the nigiri sushi that we have today can be quite small and delicate. And indeed, I think they seem to be getting smaller and smaller. Uh, depending, <laughs> I don't know what your experience is, but last time I went to a Japanese restaurant, I was quite surprised by how small the nigiri sushi were. Uh, but imagine that nigiri sushi as being two and a half times larger. So it's almost the size of like half of a hot dog. And this is something that you would queue up for uh, at a stand and it would be outdoors and you would order it and you would stand there and eating it. Maybe there'd be some tea served, maybe not. So it's a very informal street food. And it remained that way uh, up through uh, the 1930s. Sushi really had its had its uh, fame as a food that men would gather and eat standing. It's interesting um, that before the war, around the war, uh, it's a street food. It's not held in very high regard, it seems, from, from reading your book. And yet, you know, you end up with a place like Jiro, shown in, the, you know, in that documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which is kind of as far from a casual street food as I can imagine. So how did that transition happen? This is something that happens in the post-war period. Now, I, I, sh I should qualify that by saying there were some higher-end sushi places even in the early modern period, and there were some before the war. But certainly after World War II, I mean, sushi has always been something of a, of a Besides being a street food, it's something that's a special food. It's a higher-end food. It's not something that people eat every day in Japan. Uh, most people don't. It's something for special occasions. So that allows for uh, more higher-end restaurants to prepare it. And uh, sushi chefs become a little more professionalized after World War II. Uh, there's licensing structure that's put in to be a sushi chef. Before the war, we, we read these uh, guides to employment where Anybody can almost open up a sushi stand, but that becomes very difficult after the Second World War. Sushi becomes more professional, and I think the quality goes up, and with the quality rising, then there's room for higher-end sushi. And so we, we, we culminate with Jiro, uh, where you, know, you can't even get a reservation today. At least I can't. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you have to have connections to go there uh, for one, and then you have to be able to afford it. I mean, is it is it really that skillful making sushi? Well, I think cutting the fish, I mean, that's the real art. Uh, I think a sushi chef would say, well, there's an art to everything, and, and they're probably right to it, about it. Uh, certainly, there's special techniques to, to choose the rice and to prepare the rice, but I think most of the skills are the knife skills. Of course, having that knowledge to select uh, the fish that's 
best and in season. I mean, that that's there's also a whole skill set there. So yeah, I I I think you know if you go to a sushi bar, uh, you do get your money's worth, and 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 that is a qualitatively different sushi than say in a conveyor belt sushi place or something that you pick up at the supermarket. That was going to be my next question. Was this you know, <laughs> um, the conveyor belt sushi places? They're amazing. Um, there's this conveyor belt. The dishes come past. It's color coded. You eat what you want as much as you want, and then they total up the bill. Whose genius idea was that? Yeah, that started in Osaka in the post-war period, and originally it was sort of an innovation of a standing sushi place. The The inventor, uh, according to one story, he went to a beer brewery and saw all the bottles going around, and according to another story, he was at a, a butcher shop and saw the meat going around on a conveyor belt, and he thought, hey, this is great for sushi. So the, the place was called Genroku Sushi, and it starts in the mid-1950s. And it's kind of a, it's a lower-end place uh, initially. But the idea catches on, and especially after the Osaka Expo, which occurs in 1970. And then later in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, technology develops so that sellers of fish will pre-slice everything. So it comes, there, comes to a place pre-sliced, and it, it, they de-skill de- labor. And that reduces the costs for the conveyor belt sushi owner. Is conveyor belt sushi important in how sushi ta- how does sushi take off in America? The first sushi in America probably uh, from the 1920s, uh, but it's isolated in Japanese communities in LA or in uh, Hawaii. But it's really 1960s that sushi starts going to go, going out of Japanese enclaves. And a lot of the uh, movers and shakers in L.A., the people in the film industry, uh, become interested in it. Hippies become interested in in sushi. That Then it sort of makes an initial inroads. But it's not really until the 1980s that we see the major sushi boom in the States. And then sushi hits popular culture. Which gives us unforgettable scenes in films like The Breakfast Club and Repo Man. It gives us John Belushi's Samurai Chef. And it gives us Sushi Girl by The Tubes. Sushi spread through America, Europe, and the rest of the world. And as various cultures adopted it, they also adapted it. Like the famous California Roll. Oh, sure. I mean, that's one of the great things about sushi. And one of the things that I discovered in in researching my book, I always thought to myself in the back of my head that there's some sort of authentic sushi at some time. But looking at the history of sushi, it's been constantly changing and evolving. It's always been something that's, you know, constantly being changed through many, many anonymous chefs. So, of course, when it comes to America, people are adapting it to local tastes. And the story, of course, is that the California roll you know, is representative of that, where you have uh, somebody in LA's uh, Japantown in the late 1960s coming up with this idea of putting the rice on the outside of the nori using uh, Pollock 
using this imitation crab, using avocado, which has a nice fattiness to it, putting mayonnaise in there and selling it. And is that, was the reason for that because they didn't have fish that day? That's one story. Or was the reason that, that this was supposed to be some sort of gateway food for Caucasian customers? I mean, that's another story. But uh, we really don't know. I mean, why and how and who invented it. But it was invented and that sort of inspired many invitations. Uh, Philadelphia roll with cream cheese and that opened the floodgates <laughs> for all kinds of uh, different types of sushi and with all kinds of different types of sauces. And yeah, it's, har- it's hardly recognizable in some instances compared to the pristine Japanese dish. And then going, going back to the kind of image of the classic sushi, tuna... Tuna didn't used to be a favored food. I, I, it, tuna suddenly kind of latches on, and Japan is scooping tuna out of the oceans around the world. Is that mostly down to, to sushi? To a large extent, yes. I mean, bluefin tuna really catches on after World War II, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, one is before the war, I mean, these are massive predatory fish. And so they, before the war, unless you had refrigeration, which few people did, uh, it was hard to, to manage a bluefin tuna. And so a lot of the bluefin tuna is sold really cheaply, even as like cat food or dog food. And it's not until after the war where they develops new types of technologies of fast freezing and uh, Japan's ocean fleet. Uh, develops these huge processing vessels that ply uh, waters uh, in the Pacific. And then, of course, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, there develops this global market of bluefin tuna harvested from the Atlantic and from the Mediterranean. And a lot of it goes to sushi. But why, why bluefin? Why did it catch on? I think because uh, it's a very fatty type of food and there's a greater preference in the post-war period for uh, more meaty, more more fatty types of meats. Uh, people are, are increasingly eating more meat in Japan of all sorts, and bluefin kind of feeds into this. And so it's part of the story of the changes in the Japanese diet as well in the post-war period. Is, is there any awareness in Japan that maybe it's not sustainable? Is there any backlash against tuna? Not so much, but you do have local. I mean, there, there is there are some people who are very cognizant of it and 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 work to try to change people's attitudes, of course. But I think you know, there's a lot invested in the tuna sales. But I also think that there's a greater recognition among sushi specialists about tuna that's harvested more sustainably. So instead of being captured in huge nets, uh, rather uh, people who catch it with, with line fishing uh, from small communities, small uh, fishing communities uh, in, in Japan. So there's an effort to try to uh, promote that type of tuna. So in that way, they're supporting more sustainable tuna harvesting. I think most people today would tell you that sushi's it's a healthy choice. It's a, it's a, it's a good, healthy food to eat. But um, you, you say in your book that um, you can now get sushi with, with twice the calories and sodium and cholesterol of a of a McDonald's hamburger. That that's not too healthy. Do, are people aware of that generally? Do you think? I don't think so. You're absolutely right. Sushi has this image of being a health food, 
But if one were to pick up a package of sushi at a supermarket, at least where I live uh, in Kansas, the packages aren't labeled, you know, in terms of their nutritional content often. But if you go onto the supermarket's website, like I did for this story, I was amazed to see, you know, the high levels of sodium, the high calorie count for a lot of these types of sushi. And and I, I should have known that because if you look at the sushi, they're fried or they have some sort of fried topping. They have all these types of mayonnaise derived sauces on top. So, I mean, just looking at it, you know, if you, if you think about it for a moment, this probably isn't a health food. Um, I said at the outset that I, <laughs> I wasn't going to ask you to define sushi. And we haven't mentioned Brazilian sushi or Peruvian sushi or uh, Eastern European sushi or any of those various derivatives. But, but let, me, let me read you something from, from the last chapter of your book. You, you say two millennia ago, sushi or what the Chinese called Jia and Ji. I hope I've got that pronunciation right. I think you, you do as well as I, I do. Jia <laughs> <Yeah, so. laughs> um, and Ji was fish fermented in salt with or without rice. Today, those same characters, as well as the English word sushi, refer to a plethora of ways to prepare not just fish, but all sorts of foods, to the point that it's hard to understand what ties them all together apart from their shared name. That's kind of astonishing. After all your exhaustive history, what do you think we learned from that? I took away that sushi, I think, is one of the greatest world cuisines. Now, there's lots of ways to define cuisine, and we could have that conversation. Uh, but I think it's, it's, it's a way of serving food, and that's how we could think of cuisine in this instance. And it, it's sort of a repertoire of, of cooking techniques. And it's just been fascinating to me to see how those techniques, which at, at their basic level involve some kind of grain, some kind of salt uh, and other flavorings, and some kind of fish, or not, because you could have vegetarian sushi. And in the ancient period, they had meat sushi. You know, they had uh, sushi made out of boar and deer. So how do those ingredients, how can they be combined in various ways? A lot of that depends on the level of technology, uh, but also it's people's imagination. And, and I, us just reading early modern cookbooks, I was fascinated the ways that people made sushi in, in various different ways, like they would serve it warm, for instance. And that's something I, I thought would be an anathema for sushi. But no, I mean, people did all sorts of experiments over time. So I think the takeaway here is that sushi is a global cuisine. And what people do in Peru or Brazil, all these different types of sushi are equally as valid, you know, and that that's that's the amazing thing. So we shouldn't turn our noses up at the sushi bagel <laughs> or the sushi pizza or, or whatever is new. It, it's just all part of sushi's long story. But how do the Japanese feel about that? I, I don't know. Does it really matter? <laughs> I mean, uh, who can say? I, I, you can read Japanese chefs who go abroad these so-called sushi masters and list page after page of problems that they see in their travels. And they might have a point, you know, but I mean, really, does it matter? Do they really have authority over, over sushi? Not as far as the rest of the world is concerned. No. 
I have to say, I'm not a sushi purist, but I think I draw the line at Brazilian dessert sushi with M&Ms instead of salmon eggs on top. Eric Roth's book, Oishi, The History of Sushi, is published by Reaction Books. And tuna? Well, personally, I mostly avoid it these days. So I was pleasantly surprised to read a recent piece in National Geographic from this year's World Conservation Congress in France. According to that, Atlantic bluefin tuna are doing much better than they were 10 years ago, and they're no longer officially endangered. That's not to say we should unleash another fishing free-for-all, but it is encouraging. Yellowfin and albacore tuna are also doing better. I'll put a link to that article in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com, along with details of how you can get Eric Roth's book. And of course, thanks to the generosity of the show's patrons, you can get a transcript of this episode from the show notes. EatThisPodcast.com is also where you can find the archives with more than 230 episodes for your listening pleasure. I'm always happy to hear what you think about any of the episodes. You can find me on Twitter at EatPodcast and Instagram at EatThisPodcast or use good old-fashioned email jeremy at EatThisPodcast.com. That's it for this episode. Until the next time, from me, Jeremy Chaffers, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.